If you would, open your Bibles to Micah chapter 7. We are finishing a series in the book of Micah today. And it's the part 10. The title of the series is, Who is Like God? Who is Like God? And um, subtitle for this particular message is, A New Exodus. Now, if you would... Look at your, if in your bulletin you, you have the notes, and um, let's kind of give you an outline of what we're going to be covering today, but if you, if you have that, if you turn to the back of it, I want to I start this morning by showing you where we're going to end, because that way you at least get some idea of where we're going in this. So if you would, look at that. At the very end, under the word conclusion, it says, Micah's name means, who is like God? That's actually the translation of his name. But it's also the question he asks in our text today. Who is like God? He puts this question in our mouths. Who is like God? And the call of Micah, the prophet, and this book which he's left us, to all of us is to be those who are like God. And to do this, uh, to do so, we have to follow Jesus on a new exodus to a new society built on justice and mercy. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. That's what this book is ultimately about and fundamentally what the gospel is about as we'll see. So if you would, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we approach this book, this end of this book, in this section, Lord, help us to be conformed to the image of your Son. Help us to stand in awe of who you are and what you are like, and yet in our wonder, Lord, to be made like your Son, who is like you. In Jesus' name, amen. What is sin? It's a pretty basic question, given that Christianity deals with the issue of sin. Salvation addresses the issue of sin. So, what is sin? A common metaphor for sin is to miss the mark. But if we define it that way, we really haven't said much of anything unless we also go ahead and define what the mark is. Right? And what is it that I missed? In other words, if... if Sin is metaphorically like a guy taking a spear and throwing it at a target, but he misses the target. Well, then, in order to understand what sin is, I I have to define where is the target and what is the target. If Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, stop sinning lest something worse come upon you, or in another place, maybe uh, your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. Well, If he says stop sinning, what is it he's telling us to stop doing? Or, if sin is missing the mark, what is it he's telling us to start hitting? Right? So, we need to understand that, where that target is. Conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees often boil down to the definition of sin. They often boil down to how it is they defined sin differently. They agreed that the law explained what sin and righteousness are, But how does one interpret that law? One day, there's a teacher of the law. He arrives at a gathering where a bunch of his buddies are arguing with Jesus and disputing over things. And he notices that Jesus keeps putting them in their place. So Jesus is answering these things pretty good. You know, and apparently he kind of liked it because he was obviously used to these guys debating things theologically. And evidently, they never would get put in their place because they'd just keep going. And Jesus seemed to be doing it. So he says, you know... I'm thinking, he probably is thinking to himself, 
I've had this argument with them, and I never seem to win, so I'm going to put it to Jesus, and he's going to show them I'm right. And it turns out he was, so he asked Jesus the question, uh, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, we all know there are a bunch of commandments in the law. I mean, hundreds, thousands of commandments in the law. But which is the greatest one? Well, Jesus answered as any good Jew would with the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Now, he should be done. He's answered the question. No one asked Jesus what the second commandment was. Nobody asked that question. Nobody cared what that question was. That wasn't even on the table. But Jesus refused to stop there. Far too often, we stop there. The primary problem with the Pharisees is that they stopped there too. Jesus refused to let us stop there. In fact, the entire Bible refuses to let us stop there. Yahweh says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, which is the essence of saying you can't stop with the first great commandment. It isn't all just about loving God. Oh, I'm I'm so devoted to God. I'll make these sacrifices to God. No, it has to move to that place of mercy. Jesus knows that to stop there would feed right into the pharisaical self-righteousness and false religion that was so prevalent. So without skipping a beat, he continues. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, we usually think that the story is essentially over, all but rolling the credits, right? We're reading along in our Bibles. We get to that point. The rest of it's just filler because the narrator has to connect it to what's next. But that's far from true. Actually, what follows is quite significant. It's really central to the gospel and to understanding it. The man says, now I'm even more impressed, Jesus. Essentially, that's my interpretation. You are right, he goes on to say, to identify who God is and and to say that to love him and only him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, when he said that, he did two things, two important things. One, he combined the two great commandments right into one long chain as if they were so intricately bound together that you can't separate them. And secondly... He said that this one combined commandment is greater than all burnt offerings and sacrifices, which means he has now referenced Hosea 6.6 where the Lord says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's tied it. By the way, prior to this, according to Matthew's gospel, Jesus has twice quoted Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, in argument with the Pharisees over the definition of sin, whether it's right or wrong to do this, that, or the other. They blew it. For them, it was all about sacrifice. For Jesus, it was all about mercy. And so, by answering this way, this guy shows that he recognizes that when we understand that loving God and loving neighbor are so bound together that you cannot take them apart, we're really getting close to something. And what is it we're getting close to? Jesus said, and this is his response, you are not far from the kingdom of God. When we understand the relationship between the two love commandments, that the target of the law is mercy and not sacrifice, 
we're getting really close to an understanding of the kingdom of God. It's what one person called a circular paradigm. Because love of God is of first importance, yet we love God through loving our neighbor. So, yes, love of God is first. However, I love God by loving my neighbor. I cannot take them apart. Now, I surmise (coughs) that most of those sitting in church seats across America today, if sin is even still in their vocabulary at all, would predominantly define the target. If sin is missing the mark, what is the mark? What is the target? They would predominantly find the target as loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well enough. The problem is how we define loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. See, typically in the evangelical church, not necessarily taught from the pulpits, maybe, maybe not. I'm not going there to infer anything. I'm simply saying just functionally how we think. Typically in the evangelical church, we define loving God as praying enough, reading our Bibles enough, sharing Jesus with others enough, primarily because we've been commanded to, of course, and singing with great passion at church. If I can't quite work up the passion, there's certainly something wrong with me. More serious Christians might include fasting. In other words, we define loving God as New Testament forms of sacrifice and not mercy. But Jesus said it's mercy, not sacrifice. When Jesus and the prophets, just like Micah, as we've been seeing, when they summarize the law, they always connect love of God to love of neighbor. Whether it's mercy and not sacrifice in Hosea's words or in Micah's words, act justly, love mercy. Such as to say, we love God by loving our neighbor. The only biblical description of the judgment seat of Christ. We all talk about the judgment seat of Christ. People talk about it. Rarely do I, anybody, do I hear anybody describe it as it's described in the Bible. And it's only described in one place. One place. That place, it explains that how we treat the least, the one most in need of mercy, is the sole measure that Christ will use for measuring our love for him. He will not bring up Bible reading, prayer, or evangelism. He will not critique the level of your passion during the song service. He won't even talk about your doctrine. Now, I'm not saying these aren't good things or even important things. I'm simply saying that's not what's going to take place there. If we make those things the measure of our love for God, the measure of true religion, we create pharisaical religion. For Micah, the target was do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. The sin which Micah has been rebuking the people for is missing that target in particular. And if we define discipleship as those things and not love of neighbor, we create pharisaical religion. But when Jesus defined discipleship, he said, teach them to do the things I've commanded. What were they? Mercy, not sacrifice. Love justice, or act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. That's the target. 
Matthew 7, verses 8 through 20, our text this morning is about God and his victory over sin. To understand that victory over sin, we must first understand what sin is. What it is that God is victorious over. And that's why I've spent longer than usual in an introduction. Don't worry, I've allowed for it in my time. Yes, this is a long introduction. I've broken all the rules of preaching. I said I don't care because it's important. We're going to get there. But we have to understand what that target is. We have to understand what the issue is that he's victorious over if we're going to understand it in truth. God chose a people. He delivered them from the sin and enslavement of other people called the Egyptians, right? Brought them out of Egypt. They were slaves. He brought them to a garden-like place again. Having once been kicked out of the Garden of Eden, he now brings them back to a, a land flowing with milk and honey. But because of their own sin... And their oppression of one another in that land now, he must deliver them, as we're in the book of Micah and the prophets, he must deliver them from themselves. Israel's real problem is that a bigger slave master than Pharaoh came with them when they left Egypt and followed them to the promised land. For it was in them. In fact, it's in every human being. called sin. How will God deal with this ultimate enemy? How will he deal with your ultimate oppressor? We'll explore this today in the book of Micah, chapter 7, under three headings. A new Jerusalem, a new day, a new song. A new Jerusalem, a new day, a new song. So let's begin under the heading, a new Jerusalem in verse 8. Micah 7, verse 8. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. These closing verses of Micah are written as a form of congregational worship. So the original audience would have understood that this isn't an individual speaking, but it's the worshipers, it's the congregation that is speaking. In verses 8 through 10... It's the personification of Jerusalem that is speaking. The speaker is Jerusalem. The people gather together, speak it together. Jerusalem is the capital city of of God's people. And Jerusalem says to what in Micah's time would have been expected to be Nineveh. When he prophesies that he's expecting that Nineveh, if the people don't repent, is going to conquer them. Uh, The capital city of Assyria. So Jerusalem speaking to Nineveh, as it were, and says, don't gloat over me, though I have fallen, I will rise. Now because Hezekiah did repent and turn to the Lord, this disaster was averted. However, as we've been learning in Micah a hundred years later, it did come to pass because it went right back into those same patterns of sin. And by that time when the enemy came, it wasn't Nineveh, it was who? It was Babylon. Now, of course, these names aren't given, so it was real easy for the people of God to recognize that what was thought to be the enemy that would come now has just, because they were taken over by Babylon, it's, it's Babylon. Babylon, the very starting place, as we see in the biblical story in, in Genesis 11, of human hubris, out of which Abraham was called. The pride of man, the tower of Babel. So if Jerusalem represents the city of God, Babylon represents the city of man, the opposite. 
the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed. And it was. And the people were taken into exile. It's a reverse exodus, if you will. They had been brought out of bondage into the promised land. Now they're brought out of the promised land back into bondage. Why? Because they were enslaving one another. So into bondage they go. Jerusalem has fallen. It is effectively no more. The people are elsewhere. I will rise. God will raise Jerusalem out of the ash heap of history. That is resurrection. That is a new Jerusalem. Hosea says it this way in Hosea 6, the first two verses. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. He will heal us, but he will heal us. By the way, Hosea prophesied during Micah's time. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Again, it's not the individual that's speaking. It's us. Revive us. Let us return. This is the new Jerusalem that is raised up on the third day. By the way, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he'll restore us. Does this sound familiar? When the city dies, the people are sent eastward into Babylon. When Jerusalem is captured, they go eastward. Just like out of the Garden of Eden, which way did they go? Out of the east, and they headed east, away from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord sends them away into Babylon. And restoration, notice that it says in Hosea, that we may live in his presence. Restoration means restoration to the presence of God again. Though I sit in darkness, verse 8, the Lord will be my light. Note the progression in verse 8. From fall, though I am fallen, I will rise. Fall to rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Darkness to light. Isaiah has the same combination. I'm actually saying it this morning. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Just as the grave is associated with darkness, so resurrection is associated with light. They, they embrace repentance. Notice in verse 9. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and upholds my cause. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Now, verse 9 can be perplexing. Because, well, first, she embraces this repentance. She, she says, because I have sinned against him, I'll bear the Lord's wrath. I, she She's owning, Jerusalem's owning her fault, her guilt in the situation. She's saying, I deserved this. How had Jerusalem sinned against God according to the book of Micah? We've been studying it now for nine previous weeks. How had they sinned against God? By becoming a society that did not act justly, love mercy, or walk humbly with God. They were oppressing one another. They were, the, the, the rich were stealing the land from the poor. They were, were, were having dishonest uh, trading practices going on. They kept the rich rich and the poor poor. It was an oppressive society. Essentially enslaving one another. And, and so she embraces her guilt. Why, why are we fallen? Why are we sitting in darkness? Because we have sinned against him. Now, we don't generally think of either sin or righteousness in corporate terms. As if 
it's something we do as a people of God together. But the Bible does. We have sinned. We have acted this way. We have done this. Because I have sinned, the city says, I will bear the Lord's wrath. As if the city is one. The people of God are one. Walter Brueggemann said the following. He said, (coughs) the notion of human justice, meaning justice for humans and compassion, is rarely a foremost factor in ordering a community. Indeed, most communities find ways of treating it as the last question and never the first question about human reality. Well, for God, it's always the first question. The biggest problem Israel had, it turns out, was not Pharaoh, but something within them. Something on the inside of them. They oppressed others because they were enslaved themselves and enslaved to the love of self rather than the love of others. Enslaved to mammon or money rather than God. A completely upside down value system. The oppressor followed them out of Egypt into their new society because it was within them. It's called sin. So Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that gets buried in exile and bondage, acknowledges that she bears the Lord's wrath deservedly. Because I have sinned against him by not acting justly, loving mercy, walking humbly. But she also knows that his wrath doesn't last forever. Note the word until. In the middle of verse 9. Until. But this is where it can get a little perplexing. As they plead for justice. It seems odd to plead for justice right after you've admitted your guilt, right? Verse 9 in the New American Standard Bible probably is the, the clearest, best reading of it. It says, until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. So you ask, how can she ask for justice right after owning up to how she deserved the Lord's wrath? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked. I'll explain it. Just because the Lord uses a nation, such as Assyria or Babylonia, or Babylon, because, just because the Lord uses a nation to stop vast injustices that are going on, that they're doing to each other, so he brings somebody in to, to stop it, that doesn't mean that those nations get off the hook for the injustice that they inflict, for attacking them unjustly, for having no provocation and coming in. Jerusalem was guilty of enslaving their neighbors, but they were attacked and dispossessed of their land without having done anything to provoke Babylon. Therefore, they can indeed ask the Lord to plead their case and execute justice on their behalf because they know that the Lord's wrath does not last forever. Besides, God's idea of justice includes mercy. Mercy is always a part of how God executes justice. Unlike the common caricature of the grumpy old man in the sky, God actually involves justice in his mercy. And as we've been talking about, they're woven together. They're not on opposite sides of the spectrum. Well, then we see that God will show himself to the oppressor. Look at verse 10. Then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. She who said to me, "Where where is the Lord your God? Where is Yahweh your God? 
My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. It's interesting because Pharaoh asked, Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? And wished he hadn't asked the question because when he got the answer, he didn't like what he found out. He's a lot bigger than your gods, Pharaoh, and a lot bigger than you. Now these who have mockingly said to Israel, where is your God as they take them into exile? Well, they're going to find out where he is, aren't they? And they're not going to like the answer either and wish they hadn't asked. And when he does answer, they will be covered with shame. But as we'll see in a moment, this oppressor who will be trampled underfoot morphs from the enemy, Babylon, Assyria, morphs into something else, but that's in point three, so we'll get to that in a moment. But just keep in mind this treading underfoot because it comes up again. Jerusalem would be buried in death and darkness, but raised in a new way through repentance to life and light. This is the new Jerusalem that the New Testament speaks of. And it will happen in a new day. See, Micah lived in an old day, but the new day had not come. The day of the Messiah had not come, and it will happen in a new day. We read about that beginning in verse 11. The day or a day for building your walls will come. The day for extending your boundaries. You see, a new day is coming. That's what verses 11 through 13 are about. It will will not be a a day of falling or darkness. It will not be a day of captivity. No, it will be a day of restoration. A day that will... Last, a day that will at least in some way remind Israel of the glory, the glory days of David when their boundaries were extended far and wide. Extending your boundaries is mentioned. Then there's this statement of inclusion of the Gentiles. Look at verse 12. In that day people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, even from Egypt and to the Euphrates. Babylon, then from sea to sea and mountain to mountain, they will come from every direction. Everything's coming. These people are just going to come in this resurrected Jerusalem. People are going to flow from every direction into it. And and people from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, what's going on here? It's as if we suddenly arrived in the book of Acts. Isaiah says something similar in, in chapter 19 of Isaiah in verse 24. He says, In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Wow. My people, my inheritance, my handiwork. All terms usually applied to Israel, now applied to Gentiles. And the Gentiles make up two-thirds, the larger portion of this resurrected people of God. But before these Gentiles are raised up into a new day in which they too are coming into the new Jerusalem, they too will undergo an exile of their own, in a matter of speaking. Look at verse 13. There we see that the Gentile nations will undergo an experience similar to what Jerusalem is going to undergo. And what we saw there in verse 8 for Jerusalem in 9. The English Standard Version makes it a little more clear, so I'll read it from the ESV. But the earth... will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. The earth will be desolate 
because of something the inhabitants have done. And what is it? Well, it's because of the fruit of their deeds, their wicked deeds. The earth here is the nations of the world everywhere in the world, so to speak. And they, they will experience a removal of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In other words, they'll all experience of an exile of, of a sorts. In other words, God's wrath on sin will not only affect Jerusalem, but every society that is not built on love of neighbor. Every oppressive society that squashes the weak, his judgment will come. Remember, what's the target? Mercy, not sacrifice. You've got to keep that in mind as we start thinking about how God is dealing with sin. Why is he going to do it? Because on account of the fruit of their deeds, for the fruit of their deeds... Remember, the Lord came looking for fruit. We've looked at that for a couple of weeks now, but the Lord came looking for fruit. What kind of fruit? Good fruit. Mercy. Love of neighbor. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly. That's what he's looking for. Micah was looking for it. Yahweh was looking for it. Fruit looks like doing the will of the Father. Fruit looks like feeding the least. But but the inhabitants of the earth have borne bad fruit. It isn't just Jerusalem that's oppressing the poor. It's every nation on earth. Because we are all babbles in our heart. The pride of man, the love of mammon. And it seems that when the inhabitants of the earth in their fallenness, sitting in darkness, repent, they too will rise and see the light of the Lord and will be a part of this Raised up Jerusalem, which is exactly what we see when we get to the New Testament, isn't it? A new shepherd will be placed over this new Jerusalem. Note verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, which lives by itself in a forest and fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days long ago. As in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Now, in the Old Testament, shepherd did not really refer to religious leaders like we think of today. Like, you know, pastor it simply means shepherd. That's what the word pastor means. So people used to call me a pastor or somebody else a pastor. By the way, I prefer you just call me Jerry. Um, that's another story. Um, but the point being that, that we think of it in, as a religious uh, term, but it wasn't in the Old Testament. Actually, um, it was the king, the Davidic king in particular, that was the shepherd. Remember, David was a shepherd before he was a king. And at his inauguration as king, the people of Israel reminded him what the Lord had spoken to him when he first called him. The Lord had said to him, you, David, will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. Ruler meaning king. Shepherd, you will shepherd, you will become their ruler. When Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd... He's talking about being the good king. I'm the good king you've been waiting for. I'm the good ruler that's going to come and give you peace. I'm the one that's going to bring shalom. I'm not the one who oppresses you. I'm not the one who comes and and exalts myself over you and keeps you under my foot and taxes you to the point that I have a feast at my table and you have nothing. No, I lay down my life for the sheep. I'm the good king, the good shepherd of the people. This shepherd will bring about the peace of the kingdom, the shalom. Note the description of the forest that is so full of life, and yet it's filled with grass. It's a pasture. It's trees, a forest, but there's no underbrush and thorns and 
jungle-like stuff. It's park-like. And you can feed there. It's reminiscent of another place, the Garden of Eden, filled with trees and food and flourishing. That's what he restores to us as shalom, peace. Bashan and Gilead are two of the very first places that Israel had taken when they first came to the promised land. They're east of the Jordan. They were rich pasture lands. They were used symbolically to remind Israel that Yahweh would fulfill his promises. Hey, he gave you Bashan and Gilead, those kings who came out to attack you. He gave those to you. Now you know he'll give you the rest. He'll fulfill his promise. In other words, the Lord's saying, just as I did before, I'll do again. I'll fulfill my promises to you. Just as the Lord had showed wonders in verse 15, he had showed wonders to Pharaoh when he took Israel out of Egypt. Now he says he's in this new exodus, this new restoration, that he's going to rescue them from bondage, that he'll, he'll do so through a display of wonders. Of course, the wonder of all wonders was something nobody ever expected, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The kings of the earth lose their power to this coming king. Read with me in verse 16 and 17. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. Kind of creepy, huh? They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord, our God, and will will be afraid of you. Now, this fear of the Lord at the end of verse 17, this is not a turning to the Lord, like the fear of the Lord, like a good thing. This is the same fear we see in Revelation 6, 15 and following, where the kings of the earth and all their mighty and powerful leaders run scrambling to hide in caves from the wrath of the Lord and from the wrath of the Lamb. The nations will see and be ashamed. They'll be deprived of their power. Why? Because the ruler of the kings of the earth, as Revelation 1.5 calls him, has taken his throne. He is shepherding his people, and they can no longer oppress the peoples. Then, as if the kings of the earth are morphed into Satan himself, who is the spiritual power behind all their oppression, we read they will lick the dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. It, it brings to mind the the curse. Any, any Hebrew listening to this, hearing this from Micah, would have immediately drawn to mind the, 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 the curse on the serpent in the book of Genesis chapter 3. Satan himself. And suddenly the oppressing powers, it's like the curtains pulled back and we see that behind them is the serpent. Who's been lying to people all along about how things will be better if they just listen to him. All of a sudden, it's pulled back. There he is. The serpent crawling on the ground, the cursed one, of whom the Lord promised the seed of the woman will crush his head. Micah's talking about that day when the seed of the woman will crush his head. They'll be deprived of all their power. This new Jerusalem will arise in a new day, shepherded by the good shepherd king, and will sing a new song. Look with me at verse 18. Who is a God like you, who pardons sins and forgives, literally passes over the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? 
You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Who is a God like you who delights to show mercy? You will again have compassion on us. You will tread over our sins. You will tread, you will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in, the, in days long ago. Now these verses are really the key to the whole. I've been comparing this all along to the story of the Exodus and there are linkages all along to that story, but these verses make it plain that that's exactly what Micah intends for us to do. If you compare, going all the way back actually to verse 7 through verse 20 of Micah 7, with the song of Moses, so Israel comes out of Egypt, they go through the desert, they arrive at the Red Sea, they're stuck, the armies of Pharaoh, they look behind them, oops, they're coming to get us again. And what's the Lord do? He separates the sea, they go through. They're on the other side, and then the Pharaoh and his armies follow them. The sea covers them back over. They're all drowned in the sea. And there in Exodus 15 is the song of Moses, rejoicing over their deliverance. The parallels between that song and this song that Micah is singing, or whether it's a prayer or a song, but there are at least eight words and themes that connect them together. And probably I would say much more, but at least eight easy ones to find there. But nowhere is it more clear than in these last few verses, 18 through 20. Who is a God like you? The question asked in that song as well. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and literally passes over? Now, I didn't include passes over in that count because the Passover is not specifically mentioned in that song, even though it is the outcome and the effect of the Passover. So I think it's a fair one. We could say nine then. But who passes over the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. So how will Israel be raised up? How will Jerusalem that dies be raised up? Their sins will be pardoned and passed over. He does not stay angry forever, but delights to show mercy. Who is like our God? You will tread our sin underfoot. Now, the image of God treading sin underfoot on the people's iniquity, in other words, treading on that, isn't found anywhere else in the Old Testament. That's a unique image. So we need to pause and consider it. And what is he saying here? Treading underfoot implies overpowering. It was an idiom. It it meant overpowering, conquering, bringing under submission. You know, we, we see it in bumper stickers, don't tread on me, right? which is kind of like saying, you aren't the boss of me. It's the same word used in Genesis 1.28. You're familiar with it, where it describes how that God made man in his image and they were to subdue the earth. Now, we know from our study of Genesis 1 that that meant to subdue the earth for the benefit of others in the image of God, to benefit those made in his image by subduing the earth for their benefit, extending Eden, the garden, to the ends of the earth. Instead, the people of Jerusalem and other, every other nation has been subduing one another for the benefit of themselves. The exact opposite of what we're called to do. That's called oppression. By the way, subduing the earth is not permission to rape the earth of its resources in order to enrich ourselves to the level of kings. 
The term is also used to describe the subjugation of people as slaves, to tread them underfoot, to keep them under your foot, we might say in our day. Which is not only what Pharaoh had done to them, but it's now what Jerusalem has done to one another and what all the nations of the world do to each other. And verse, the end of verse 19, And hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Now this is a picture right out of the Song of Moses. As they were on the east side of the Red Sea, looking back over the drowned army of Pharaoh who had been hurled into the sea. Now because we can't relate to what it's like to be a slave in Egypt, having your sons thrown in the river and put on the end of a sword. Because we can't relate to that, we moderns get a little embarrassed when we start reading of the drowning of Pharaoh's army and all his horses in the sea, like, oh, well, what kind of God does that? And if you're a PETA member, you're definitely concerned about all these horses drowning, right? So let me, let me help you a little bit here, a little cultural gap. Horses were like tanks in those days, in that culture, so think tanks. So this is a peace rally. Got it? The army was a power for oppression. It's an anti-war statement, not an anti-animal treatment thing going on here. It's an anti-oppression thing going on here. To bring it a little closer to home, let me help you with this. Imagine a group of dispossessed African slaves. We can't call them African Americans in 1854 because they weren't citizens. They had no rights of citizens. They were dispossessed African slaves in America. And imagine they've escaped. This whole group of them has escaped and they're, they're heading north and they're about to cross the Ohio River where they'll be free. But there's a lynch mob posse on their heels. When they catch them, they'll lynch some, they'll beat the others and, and re-enslave them. And just as they're about to reach the slaves and capture them as they're all crossing the Ohio River, they're Boats turn over and they drown in the river. And the slaves make it to the other side free. Now, if you're watching that movie, you cheer. Unless you're crazy. You cheer. You don't start talking about how awful it was that these bad, mean, lynch mob posse people drowned in the sea. Because you understand that that's a lot closer to home, isn't it? You get that. You see justice there. <clears throat> Somehow we're so removed from thousands of years ago that, or maybe we're just so used to the story, we don't get it. These were some wicked dudes that drowned in the sea. Now look at what has happened in Micah's song. In the first exodus coming out of Egypt, the oppressor, the slave master, was Pharaoh and his army. But now in the second exodus... What is it that's in the sea? It's our sins that have been cast into the sea. That was the oppressor. That was the slave driver. That was the oppressor that came with Israel out of Egypt and followed them into the promised land such that they were oppressing one another because sin, the slave master, causes me to do what? To do his bidding. And what is his bidding? Not to have mercy on my neighbor, not to love my neighbor as myself, but to oppress my neighbor for the benefit of myself. To make mammon my God and not God, Yahweh, our God. The Messiah leads us on the second exodus, and sin is the one that is thrown in the sea. 
But remember, sin is not missing sacrifices, it's missing mercy, missing the mark. If missing the mark is sin, then it's not that we miss the right sacrifices, the right devotional life, the right this, the right that. No, it's missing mercy, love of neighbor. Sin is the oppressor that came out of Egypt, followed them. And it's the oppressor that we have no power to shake, that no power, earthly power can rescue us from, but Messiah can and does. Amen? And then verse 20, he says, You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. Jacob isn't a a reference to Israel, as it might often be, but to the actual person, Jacob, because the next line is, and show love to Abraham. So it's the individuals that are in mind. It means that Jacob and Abraham are actually still very much alive. Even though they died without having received the promise, they they will see that the promise will be fulfilled when Messiah comes and does this. Abraham, who believed that God would justify the ungodly, will see that promise fulfilled in the new exodus when the Messiah, King Jesus, brings the seed of Abraham, the resurrected Israel, the sons of Jacob, including the Gentiles that are joined in, into the freedom which they need most and they need first, which is freedom from our oppressor's sin. Which doesn't mean that other freedoms aren't important, but that's the one that will make all the others possible so that we stop oppressing one another. We get to the New Testament and all four Gospels are set up to show us that Jesus is leading us and his people on a new exodus. You may not have noticed it before. We try to point it out anytime we're in the Gospels. But try to pay attention to that because the prophets speak of it. Micah's speaking of it. It's going to deliver us from these things. And Jesus references Micah a lot, actually. He's leading us on a new exodus. Delivering us from the oppressor, sin. Not so that sin doesn't matter. See, I think we get that wrong sometimes. Oh, Jesus delivered us from sin, so sin doesn't matter. No, Paul said, absolutely not, God forbid. Not so that sin doesn't matter, but so that we can stop sinning lest something worse come on us, as Jesus said. So that we can stop sinning. He actually delivers us from the slave master so that we can stop sinning, stop treating one another unjustly. Now we have a new song to sing. God has hurled our sin into the sea and subdued it. He has defeated it. Now through the Spirit we can fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Just a couple of comments in closing here. God is raising up a new Jerusalem, a society of people, a kingdom in which justice and righteousness are sought first, a kingdom in which the notion of human justice and compassion is a foremost factor in ordering this community. 1 Peter 2.9 speaks of it. You are a chosen, gener- uh, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his light. Notice that reference, out of darkness to light, that same concept that is right here in Micah, resurrected new people of God. In order to enter this community, we have to recognize our own contribution to the bondage of others by our sin. Our own missing the mark, the mark of loving God and neighbor, that circular paradigm. Repentance. We have to come through repentance. In order to enter this community, we must be raised to new life in Jesus Christ. A new way of living. Jesus Christ who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, as it said in Revelation 1.5. He set us free and he leads us into a new way of living. And in this new community, we become a kingdom of priests 
mediating God's wondrous ways, his just and right ways to the world. Micah's name means who is like God. The question that Micah puts in our mouths is, who is like God? None other. Yet the call of Micah to all of us is to be those who are like God. And to do so, we have to follow Jesus on a new exodus to a new society built on justice and mercy. And that day, this is our song. And listen, that new society isn't out in the wilderness somewhere, hidden away from people. He doesn't take us out of the world. He leaves us in the world, but not of it. So this new society lives in and amongst the people of the world, but we function according to a different value system altogether. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, do this work in us. Make us like your son. Teach us to love mercy, to act justly, to walk humbly. Teach us your ways. Form us into that new society that is founded on justice and compassion toward one another. Transform us by your grace. Help us not to measure sin or righteousness by sacrifice, but by mercy, lack thereof, mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.